when you ever you look at anyone who's like really performing at the upper echelons of achievement, you find they have transcended their self momentarily. They're in this like state of consciousness, an altered state of consciousness where all of their defenses and self-critical thoughts and doubts are not holding them back. So when our ego is fully active, we are actually literally blocking our self-actualization. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. Slowing down to truly listen to what someone else is saying. Slowing down to really soak up the wonder of the natural beauty surrounding you. Slowing down to let another car onto the highway or another person onto the subway in front of you. There is, it seems to me, a certain humility in slowing down, just as there's a certain ego associated with speeding up. Letting your individualism run away with you as you press to the front of the line with a me-first, me-first mentality. And today, we're going to talk about that interplay through the lens of a concept called the quiet ego, and how having a quiet ego leads to a greater sense of well-being, self-esteem, and a feeling of meaning in your daily life. My guest is psychologist, writer, and podcaster Scott Barry Kaufman. I've been following Scott's work for years as his research touches on many of my own obsessions, how creativity unfolds, what factors contribute to self-actualization, and what makes up a personality. And is it changeable? Most recently, Scott co-authored a fascinating study of personality around the so-called light triad qualities. The field of psychology has long been obsessed with a set of qualities called the dark triad, which encompass narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. But Scott wanted to explore the inverse of that. What were the qualities of goodness inherent in all of us? And how might they relate to our well-being, our creativity, and even our ability to achieve our goals? We'll take a deep dive into all of these topics in this rich discussion about the benefits of quieting your ego and how having more faith in humanity leads to a greater faith in yourself. Let's dig in. I want to start by talking about this idea of the quiet ego. You've written that quieting the ego as opposed to focusing on self-enhancement is much more effective in cultivating well-being, growth, health, productivity, self-esteem. Yes. Could you explain how you define the word ego first, and then what exactly having a quiet ego means? So people have, there's like 150,000 different definitions of ego in the field of psychology, in the psychology literature, maybe not that many, but there's a lot. Um, I like to think of it as our uh, defensive mechanisms. Um, it's the kind of fortress that we build uh, around ourselves uh, to protect ourselves from the pain of rejection, from the pain of losing, you know, all the sort of uh, things that uh, we evolved to experience pain, like, you know, that includes social rejection, right? Not just like rejection to college or something. Um, and 
the ego serves a adaptive purpose. So when I think of the ego, I don't think of the ego itself as a bad thing necessarily. You know, for, for a lot of people who uh, maybe have had experienced trauma, um, we have these automatic uh, evolved sort of adaptations that allow us to cope in the moment, but they don't serve our long-term growth. In the long term, if you really want to grow, develop, uh, maximize your creative potential, you need to overcome that at some point. Um, or, and we never fully overcome it, but, I, but what I mean by that is like dial it down. Dial it down so that we can listen to signals coming outside of ourselves as well. You know, some people might have this perception that the loudest ego wins or something. And, and people with the loudest egos tend to think that. <laughs> they, they tend to think that's what they need to do to win. Um, and I don't think we really recognize in our society as much that we can turn the dial down without losing our sense of self. You know, um, there, it's not an either or thing. It's not either you are this... Um, people walk all over you or you're this huge uh, colossal narcissist there's a middle ground a middle way where you have a very flexible mindset that allows you to um, not have such a loud ego that you can't listen to different perspectives there are four specific qualities that define the quiet ego can you kind of walk me through what those qualities are Absolutely, as long as one caveat, and that's that I remember them. <laughs> <laughs> mindfulness is one of them, and it's a particular kind of mindfulness where you aren't on automatic pilot all the time. There's different facets of mindfulness, so that specific facet is what they included on there. You know, that you're kind of like uh, attentive to, in a deliberate fashion, to what you're doing, um, and you do things deliberately and mindfully. Perspective taking is another one where you're able to not only have the capacity to take different people's perspectives, but also the motivation to do so. You know, um, like psychopaths are really good at perspective taking when they want to be <laughs> so that they can manip- manipulate people, you know. But people with a quiet ego, like, you know, are motivated to take perspectives even if it doesn't benefit them personally, you know. What's next? <laughs> do you have the list? <laughs> uh, I think there's inclusive identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, inclusive identity is um, having the sense of. Again, even with people who have a a different identity from us, you know, that like they're still part of my tribe Um, and and, and ideally your tribe would be humanity, tribe humanity, not um, a very specific narrow identity. I think that that's a particular problem in the world today, you know, with with everyone uh, claiming their own identity. And, and then in the worst case scenario, um, I see collective narcissism happening. And that's another topic I've been studying lately, you know, where uh, you say, like, well, my identity is the best, you know, and and the out group is 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 can't even compare, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, why are we all comparing? Why aren't we just lifting each other up as opposed to, you know, comparing? And then uh, the last one is personal growth. The last facet of the quiet ego is personal growth. And what's interesting is like these four are, form a system, you know, like either one in isolation is not the quiet ego. The quiet ego is like the confluence of these four. And it's interesting that like the, the, like the first three I mentioned really um, impact personal growth. Like you can grow once you are mindful and, and have a broader identity and, and really want to take the perspectives of, of different individuals, but it doesn't mean you lose your sense of self. And I think that's the cool thing. And that's been studied in multiple ways and sh- shown in multiple ways. You know, losing your sense of self is, is not a positive thing from a psychological perspective. It's associated with psychopathology, you know, like a lot of people with like borderline uh, personality disorder, for instance, um, say like, I just don't know who I am at all. It's like constantly changing. And that's a major, you know, core characteristic of psychopathology. So I want to be very clear, a 
quiet ego is just quiet. It's not, it's not gone. And so do you have any thoughts on how one would go about cultivating some of these, you know, qualities that you just described? Obviously, it sounds good, this idea of having a quiet ego. Um, you talked about mindfulness. You talked about the ability to perspective take. You talked about the ability to see the world from an inclusive yeah. perspective. Um and in terms of cultivating that, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is meditation and maybe even specifically loving kindness meditation. Yeah. But I imagine there are a variety of different approaches. What's your take on that? Uh, loving kindness is a particular kind of meditation that has been shown uh, to be really powerful for this this kind of quieting of the ego, especially the inclusive identity part. Like once you start like having loving kindness for your enemies, that kind of like changes your way of thinking about the world a little bit. It doesn't mean you automatically like them. The thing about love is you can love someone without liking them, you know, and people don't realize that, you know, like uh, there are a lot of people I can't stand in this world, but I wish them well. Because I know that if they're well, the world is going to be a better place, right? Some other things, I mean, like all the things that um, relate to this are things related to a shift in perspective. So like some researchers are coming up with like virtual reality situations that um, induce the all experience, AWE experience, and kind of gets you out of your normal frame of of, uh, me reference um, to more of a we sort of thing. Um, and that's been shown to be to, to move the dial on this kind of thing. Like, like I would say a whole class of what are called, um, my colleague David Yadin calls self-transcendent experiences. Um, and that can uh, be a lot of things from, you know, like climbing a mountain and staying on the top of it to just having a really connecting moment with another human being where you just feel like um, you're in flow with that person. And w- once you like, once that snaps into flow, you, you're not focusing on your ego anymore. You're not focusing on like, oh, I need to make sure that I'm defending my fort. You know, it's like I'm actually listening. So a lot of different activities that are connected to self transcendence, yes. whatever that yes. may be for you. And as you said, nature is a big one in terms of at least some of the research that I've read around experiencing awe. I mean, you naturally think of religious experiences, but for many people, nature is one of the most common ways to experience awe. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it's true. But also, I mean, I think what's really helpful for a lot of people who may um, have uh, physical disabilities, like it's almost like a privilege if you can like go and be in nature, you know, like um, even afford such trips. So I, what I see holding a lot of promise are virtual reality technologies and things um, that from the from your home, you can be in Paris, you know, you can do these things that other people uh, can, can do more easily. Well, and so thinking about... Uh on thinking about nature, um, what do you think that the role of solitude plays in quieting the ego? I I would argue that solitude is something that's increasingly rare for people, um, though unlike climbing mountains, accessible to everyone, theoretically. Um, And it's even a state that it feels like is becoming a bit scary for people because we're so used to being connected to others at all times. So I've done like this analysis of like introversion and solitude and it turns out that, you know, cause some people might like think of this old Jung thing, like you're an introvert, 
um, you like solitude. You're an extrovert. You don't like solitude. It's like that is not true. That's such a oversimplification. <laughs> like there's plenty of extroverts that like solitude, just less on average, you know, but they still like we all kind of appreciate downtime. Um, what it turns out is that um, introversion only correlates with um, with experiencing solitude. It doesn't say anything about the quality of the solitude that you're experiencing. The uh, moderator, as we, we call it in psychology, is, is a trait called openness to experiences. So if you're high in openness to experiences and whether or not you're an introvert or extrovert, you tend to, to use your solitude in a more um, creative and productive fashion and you're comfortable with it. You know, so I think the key thing there is not just the word solitude, like think of the range of and I won't go into any uh, details, but all the range of things you can do in solitude, you know, the full range, you know, and and and, and it can range from um, things that are wholly unproductive and useless and waste your life to things that bring you uh, joy and um, and replenishment. Yeah, well, and I was thinking about solitude in particular because I was thinking about um, really kind of having space to do things like autobiographical thinking totally. where you are, you know, reflecting on yourself, reflecting on your trajectory, reflecting on how, you know, you relate to other people. And it seems to me that that would be necessary in order to quiet that ego. And if you never had the time or you always so busy or so engaged with technology or your work that you couldn't do that, that it would just be really, from a purely functional perspective, it would be really difficult to quiet the ego. I think that's right. You know, uh, it sounds like you're the type of person who is very comfortable with solitude. <laughs> and and again, like, I, I, I want to break out of this introversion-extroversion distinction, you know, because um, solitude is not just for introverts. And, and, and I should say, quality of solitude, you know, is something I think we all can harness. What role do you think that technology specifically and social media plays in all of this? I have to imagine these are things that are only contributing to our thirst for self-enhancement as opposed to contributing to quieting the ego. It feels like, you know, obviously like technology is a dumb tool. Um, and then we, but it's interesting to see like what people, how people use, tend to use it. And that's a case study in humanity right there. And it seems like people overwhelmingly use it for self-enhancement purposes. It's a natural experiment, and, and it's, show, it's revealing the, the, some of the most basic needs of humans. And it shows, I think it's also revealing in this day and age, some of the most pressing needs, uh, you know, what's going most unfulfilled. You know, we tend to gravitate towards behaviors um, that will fulfill our most, uh, our greatest deprivation of our basic needs. And so it seems like, People are really suffering with satisfying their needs for connection and their needs for self-esteem. Those two things are big today in the world. People are, are gravitating towards social media to help them fill those holes. And it turns out it's not filling those holes. It's almost like a dopamine thing. You constantly, it's, or like gambling, you think it's going to fill uh, both of those needs and yet it, it continually doesn't, and then you, so you keep going back hoping that it will, and then what you do is you never actually talk to a real human being in the real world. You never do the things that actually would help you satisfy those needs. So I want to circle back to something you touched on earlier, which is that people who have a quiet ego are more likely to exhibit self-compassion and also to have a strong sense of self 
worth, which I think is interesting, right? Because you might look at some of those qualities that you described earlier and imagine someone who was kind of self-sacrificing. But it's not really about trying to be a martyr or anything of that nature. And it seems to be more about recognizing other people's humanity, including your own, which means having compassion for weakness and imperfection in yourself as much as others. Absolutely. Um, one of the strongest correlations in all my research is the correlation between self-acceptance and other acceptance. It's really interesting to me that people who shine a positive spotlight on themselves tend to shine that same spotlight on strangers that they meet. Well, that's so fascinating to me because I would think, you know, that you think about these ideas of individuality and the idea that the sort of the more individual, you know, someone was, the more sort of confident they were in themselves. But instead, it's almost the opposite is true. The more embedded these people sort of feel and the more related they feel, the better they feel about themselves. It's a correlation. So you could say the opposite as well. The more better they feel about themselves, the more they, you know, I don't know what what calls out what which chicken or egg came first. But you do find that like some uh, like take let's take the complete inverse of that like people who are just like the most judgmental people like they'll just be sitting on their couch all day long on twitter being like oh my gosh look at this person look at that person look at that person if you give them questionnaires they don't really like themselves that much that's why i think it's so important to come from a real sense of a grounding and acceptance in yourself and then you can listen you know uh people who don't uh uh, have a, a good grounding of what they actually believe and what their values actually are, are the ones that tend to have difficulty listening to anything that's different. So I like to use this term that I call tender discipline to describe the state of kind of having a more generous and compassionate attitude toward yourself and sort of particularly in terms of productivity and thinking about what you can or can't accomplish in a day, a week, a month, because I think we can be really pretty harsh on ourselves when we make oh, yes. those assessments. But I don't think that harsh self-critique is really helpful. And I'm curious if this idea of tender discipline resonates with you and, and kind of this idea of the quiet ego. I'm trying to wrap my head around the idea of tender discipline. Like, I want to like it. You know what I mean? Like, I want to really <laughs> like it. I'm trying to really understand it. Well, so I think it's, right, when you think about the idea of being productive, right? There's a certain element of discipline involved, of course. But I think that so many of us have this inner critic, right? The sort of super ego that we're using to really drive ourselves and feel like we're never productive enough and we could always yeah. do more. I think that something that uh, comes to mind when you talk about this is I've often thought and, and, and have, have remarked before that, you know, you're allowed to be kinder to yourself than others are to you. <laughs> so, so that's a different that's a different twist on the, you know, like the self-compassion thing is, is all about like, well, treat yourself like you would treat a friend. But I'm like, okay, I'm going to give you another twist on that. Treat yourself better than people treat you. <laughs> so when with productivity, people, the whole thing with productivity is like, who's the judgment of like whether or not you're being productive or not? Like we always turn that outward, you know, to the external world. So much of self-esteem needs to be a stable and come from within not be reliant on external things. So I think it's really actually equally important with the whole self-compassion thing. Yes, it's true. Like treat yourself like you treat a friend, but also um, like treat yourself really well. 
um, and realize you're worthy regardless of the external sort of perception. It's time for a quick break, but stay with me. After the jump, Scott and I talk about how having a quiet ego helps you achieve your goals. That is, if you're able to sprinkle a little assertiveness into the mix. This episode is brought to you by Harvest. What gets measured gets managed. So if you want to master the art of slowing down, it's essential to get a handle on exactly where you're spending your time. Are you investing a goodly portion of your day on meaningful projects? Or is your time being siphoned away by endless meetings and emails and chat messages? Harvest is a simple and intuitive time-tracking tool that shines a light on exactly how you're investing your time so that you can make more intelligent decisions about where and how you spend it. It lets you know which projects are creating real value for your business and which ones are costing you money. It also helps you monitor your team's workload so that you can make sure people are spending their time on the right things. It even helps you get paid. Harvest saves you time by automatically creating invoices based on your tracked time and making it easy to get paid online. To make the most of your time, visit getharvest.com slash hurry slowly to start a free trial today and get 50% off your first month. That's getharvest.com slash hurry slowly for 50% off. This episode is also brought to you by Hover. Got a killer idea? I think we all know what step number one is these days. Go see if the domain name is available, and assuming it is, get that URL on lock. Finding the domain name that matches your passion is basically the first step in building your brand. Because if your brand doesn't have a website, let's be honest, it's not really a thing. Fortunately, Hover makes being the master of your domain easy. They have a mind-boggling amount of extensions to choose from, including all the classics, plus a bunch of new favorites, like .design for graphic types, or .how for the eternal questioner, or .love for the open-hearted entrepreneur. But one of the best features of Hover is that everything is included, so they're not always trying to upsell you. Who is Privacy is included with every domain for free, and nifty integrations like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain to a variety of popular website builders with just a few clicks. So if you've got an idea you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork now by heading over to hover.com slash hurry slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot com slash hurry slowly. You've written that in this this piece that we've kind of been talking about, about the quiet ego, that the more the ego is quieted, the higher the likelihood of actually reaching one's goals. Now, of course, an achievement-oriented person like me hears that, and I think like, wow, okay, so like if I just quiet my ego, you know, then I can have this or I can achieve that. I'm sure that's not what you were implying. So how does that play out? Why does quieting the ego make you more likely to reach your goals, in your opinion? Well, it's it, it, it may sound paradoxical, but we are actually at our best 
uh, performance-wise, high performance, whenever you look at anyone who's like really performing at the upper echelons of achievement, you find they have transcended their self for the moment momentarily, you know, when they're in their highest performance, like um, they're in that flow state. They're in this like state of consciousness, an altered state of consciousness where all of their defenses and, and, and self-critical thoughts and doubts are not holding them back. So when our ego is fully active, we are actually literally blocking our self-actualization. How, if at all, does the idea of the quiet ego relate to your research around light triads versus dark triads? Because as I was looking at it, it seemed like there was some pretty big crossover between light triad qualities and the quiet ego qualities. But maybe you can start by explaining what exactly the light triad and dark triad are, because um, it sounds like some sort of like new age Illuminati or something. Well, the dark triad has been studied for like 25 years in the psychology literature. Um, it was first discovered by uh, Delroy Polhos and uh, his colleagues showing that like things like psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism don't only operate among the clinical population, like criminals or those in jail or um, those in, on the clinician's couch, that like, you know what, we all differ in these traits in the general population me and you are somewhere on this bell curve of these three things and you can measure it as a personality just merely as a personality thing and that set off a flurry of research you know there's been so much research attention on the on the dark side of personality uh, what are called socially aversive characters socially aversive people and you know talking to my colleagues like david yaden uh, elizabeth hyde eli Yama, you know it just dawned I just complained. Like, I'm like, why is there so much research? Why is everyone so seduced by the dark side? Like, I was just really curious. Like, why, you know, is there a light triad? Or is there, what are the light characteristics? Like, if we kind of build this sort of thing um, uh, and, and, and just take a look. So we came up with, like, a whole, we came up with a whole bunch of items to try to measure it. And to our surprise, three factors clearly emerged from our analyses. It didn't have to be, like, it didn't have to be a light triad, right? Like, oh my gosh, a light triad really came out, you know? Yeah. Like, that's pretty darn cool. Um, so here are the three. So Machiavellianism in the dark triad world, you know, is like I use people as a means to an end. So uh, David Eden had this really brilliant idea. My collaborator David Eden was like, why don't we call it Kantianism to be the contrast? Because Kant's uh, first moral uh, imperative, you know, treat people as ends unto themselves. And so that's a nice contrast to Machiavellianism. And the, another one is faith in humanity. So really um, believing, not 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 denying the um, naughty bits of human nature, but ultimately believing in in the potential for for in believing in human potential for growth. And then third one is uh, humanism, and treating each individual, regardless of their skin color, identity, etc., with dignity and respect. And so that's against, and then on the dark triad side, you have Machiavellianism, and then what are the other two? Psychopathy. Um, so Machiavellianism is like a constant need to exploit and manipulate people. Um, psychopathy is like um, constant lying and impulsivity, you know, and not caring about, the, you're not really learning from the consequences of your actions, uh, and not really caring if you hurt people, really. Um, and narcissism is this excessive self-focus. So you get that 
like I like looking at them as a holistic thing. You can look at each of the members of the light and dark triad separately, but like in this paper, we explored the overall. If you're all three, if you're high in all three of the dark triad, you're high in all three of the light triad. You know what? Let's compare those things. Yeah. So circling back to that connection I was making, um, looking at the qualities of the quiet ego, looking at the qualities that you just described of you know the light triad. Is there um, some crossover between those qualities, do you think? Yeah, it, the correlation is so high. Um, again, I don't know, like the chicken egg sort of thing, but I think that there's just such an overlap from, from a Venn diagram point of view of characteristics of those who report high scores in the light triad, those who report high scores in the quiet ego. You know, the obviously uh, inclusive identity comes to mind as a, as a big thing that, that binds them. And you know, both the quiet ego and the the light triad are related to a lot of variables having to do with personal growth, you know? So again, it's that paradox again, like to be most productive or achieve if that's what you care about, um, or just simply personal growth, you know, you're going to be better if you approach things with this sense of humility and, um, and yet, secure self. So here's here's the follow-up question that I really wanted to ask, which was when I was looking at this paper, the research you had done around the light triad and the dark triads, I wanted to circle back to this idea specifically of achievement, which we were talking about, right? The idea of reaching your goals. And it was, if my understanding is correct, the dark triad qualities that really correlated strongly with achievement and it was also dark qualities that correlated with creativity, with bravery, with leadership, and assertiveness. And so now both myself and probably many people who are listening are entrepreneurs, they're people who work in the creative industries, and they're people who are leaders. And so all of those things, you know, I think would seem like pretty positive qualities. So how do you reconcile that? I mean, I know we're all on a spectrum. It's not just you're just light or you're just dark. But Oh, no, we're all mixed. But the thing is, like, you know, we reconcile that by doing a what's called a partial correlation analysis, where we look to see what the correlation between the dark triad and a lot of uh, adaptive variables looked like once you control for uh, the more antagonistic aspects of the dark triad. Because even the dark triad itself is a mix of maybe some adaptive things and some less adaptive things. And once we take out the the, the intense hostility and antagonism, we find that... um, what's the leftover variance is very predictive of a lot of positive things. And, and it, long story short for people who just, I just, they, I lost them with that <laughs> is that the thing that's left over and the, the thing that seems to be, we localized, that seems to be the best in that coming from the dark is simply assertiveness. It's, that's all it is. So I think the best profile is the light triad individual who combines that with higher levels of assertiveness. I think that interaction is going to be most productive. So this idea of inclusivity, the ability to perspective take, the ability to exhibit sort of a detached awareness in situations, but also healthfully express what you need and want and go for it. Go for it. That's a big part of it, too. Um, We found uh, one of the potential downsides of the light triad without the combination of some of these other uh, assertiveness related traits is guilt interpersonal guilt. 
Um, there are a lot of people who are very loving, kind, uh, quiet ego individuals who don't want to shine too brightly because others aren't shining as brightly. Um, you see that a lot in the social justice movement, by the way. You know, a lot of people like um, almost feel guilty um, achieving, you know, when there are people who are less fortunate because, look, they're very compassionate people. Like it, make, you know, it makes sense. Um, you know, these are people who, um, I mean, they care deeply. They care so much about the people who are suffering. Sometimes they forget they're allowed to achieve themselves, you know, and, and then by achieving, you can help try to bring up others, you know, like I think that it's good to pair light triad with some of the best aspects of the dark triad while getting rid of the worst aspects, which is exploitation and um, constant um, need for power. You know, the constant need for power sometimes gets in the way of achievement. Right. Well, and as opposed to that, you were writing about the quiet ego and how it's also associated with humility, spiritual growth, open-minded thinking, which you mentioned, the ability to savor everyday experiences, and also just the feeling that life is meaningful. Why do you think having a quiet ego makes life feel more meaningful? Oh boy, it it, it feels obvious to me. (laughs) Like, you know, when you're, the more that you can get outside yourself, the more you appreciate the beauty that is inherent in the world. I mean, one of the things that strikes me the most about uh, seasoned meditators who, or even those who go in like a two-day silent retreat is just how much greater beauty they notice in the world and, and how much they appreciate and see meaning in things that most people don't see meaning in, like a bird just sitting there on a, on, on a tree just, you know, like um, just whistling a tune or whatever, you know, and it's like, oh, that's really beautiful. And we really... We don't really appreciate that beauty if we're so constantly obsessed and focused on feeding our ego. I just mentioned the role that humility plays in the quiet ego. And perhaps one way to cultivate a little bit more humility would be to hone our understanding of luck. You wrote a really fascinating piece for Scientific American on the role of luck in people's success. And it turns out luck plays a huge role role much greater than most people probably think. Could you talk a little bit about that research around luck and how it how it plays into people's success? Sure. It's hard to do natural experiments. It's hard to do like actual experiments with real humans and, and have some people um, have luck and some people not have luck, you know, just because the nature of luck is um, something that it's hard to like control. But research, some physicists actually and uh, put together a, what's called a toy economic game, uh, where they distributed. Very, they started had people start off with um, various differing levels of talent, and they had a lot of iterations where some people had a lucky, fortunate experience, and some people had a lot of adversity. And you you do see that uh, over the long term. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. You, you know, psychologists have been saying this for a while in various ways. This was kind of a neat way of simulating that at a large scale of what well, we have like a lot of population of humans and we kind of do these things, uh, distribute uh, luck unevenly, you know, and luck is distributed unevenly, you know, but that doesn't mean there aren't things that you can't do to increase the chances you'll have good luck in your life. And that's another thing I want to mention because... 
um, like Richard Wiseman has done some re- really cool research on this. Like people who report more luck in their lives are more likely to give to others and then they get back in return, you know, and like, you know, they may like if they see someone on the street that's in trouble, you know, they'll help the person. And then like, I remember one case, um, it turns out that person they helped, like, I think was really rich or whatever. And then like helped them back in return someday. I mean, giving you know, we don't need to give strategically because we expect something back in return, but just embracing the world in in, in all its colors is going to make it more likely that you will experience some luck in your life. One part of that, from my understanding as as well of his research, is that open-mindedness is a big factor in luck as well. That's my favorite trait. (laughs) I mean, that's that's the thread running through everything we're talking about today. If there's one thread in common between quiet ego, luck, light triad, creativity, it's, it's openness to experience. And that's the trait I've studied the most in my own like dissertation and stuff like that. Yeah. And do you think that there, you know, that is, I believe one of the big sort of five personality traits, right? Which it's my fave. when I hear that makes me think, well, maybe it's something that kind of like you have a fixed amount of, but is that true? Like, are there ways to kind of become more open-minded if that is in fact the thing that connects all of these wonderful things that we're talking about being lucky cultivating a quiet ego being more connected to humanity well it is a personality trait but uh, I wrote an article in the Atlantic like can we change our personality or something can personality be changed and I mean there is an emerging view of personality not as like a fixed disposition but as just um, a series of habits, of patterns, of thoughts, behaviors, etc. throughout the course of our day, and that we can fundamentally alter those patterns in our lives. There are a lot of environmental things that automatically tend to alter our patterns, like starting a new job tends to have an effect on our personality. Um, changing relationships sometimes can affect our personality, like being in certain kind of relationships. Um, changing our identity. You know, just like changing our narrative as well. Like maybe I've had a victimhood narrative my whole life. And all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? I'm a hero now. It's like, whoa, I just changed my personality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I just changed the way I see everything in the world, you know. Um, so these things can have an, can really have an effect. With openness to experience, um, a lot of that is really getting out there and habitually changing the way that you, um, you know, like ask why more. <laughs> you know, like when you're talking to people who differ from you and maybe threaten your identity, say, huh, well, look, you're threatening my identity. I'm curious if there's some value in what you're saying. Maybe maybe I've thought about my own identity in an incorrect way. It's bold to be that way in this world today because everyone's so uh, ego, ego, clutching onto their defenses, everyone. And um, it takes courage to truly um, dare to actually explore who you really are, not the uh, fortress you've erected around who you really are. After this conversation, I found myself mulling over how you could blend assertiveness with those four characteristics of the quiet ego. Mindfulness, inclusivity, perspective taking, and being growth minded. So I googled the definition of assertive to refresh my memory and came up with a confident or forceful personality. Hmm, forceful. Certainly there's an interesting tension between this idea of seeing yourself as connected to other people and being able to put yourself in their shoes, yet also being able to be forceful with your own views 
at the same time. And I was reminded of a study by Allison Reynolds and David Lewis about what traits help teams really excel at problem solving. And the list of qualities for the most generative, creative teams sounds quite similar to this range. Here's what they are. Curious, encouraging, experimental, forceful, inquiring, and nurturing. And there's that word again, forceful, nestled right in against encouraging and nurturing and experimental. As Scott pointed out, quiet doesn't mean soft, and it doesn't mean weak. In fact, having a quiet ego means you're so grounded in yourself and in the here and now and in humanity that you can exude a different kind of force. One that's so powerful, you might not even have to say a word. If you're interested in learning how to work in a way that is self-compassionate, I would encourage you to check out my new online course, Reset. As I mentioned in this interview, Reset is all about learning to embrace a concept that I call tender discipline which basically involves letting go of this overbusy, overwhelmed, and overly self-critical way in which most of us are now working. A way of working that leads inevitably to burnout. Reset advocates instead for a heart-centered approach to productivity. It will show you how to align your energy and your attention with the natural rhythms of your body. Set boundaries with technology and say no to unwanted requests. And bring creativity and inspiration back into your daily routine. To learn more, visit reset-course.com. Once again, that's reset-course.com to learn more about my new online course, Reset, a cosmic tune-up for your workday. And now it's time for your final moment of Zen. What is the best decision you've ever made? Stepping out on my own in recent years and trying to be as authentic as possible without caring so much about people pleasing. Thanks to Matt Susich for producing this episode and to Devin Craig Johnson for our lovely theme music. If this podcast gave you some good food for thought, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. As always, thanks for listening, and remember to take your time. <laughs> <laughs>